We live in a society right now where capitalism is demonized and people look down upon capitalism. And I'll be the first to tell you, hell, capitalism has provided me the life that I have right now. And I truly believe that if more people from the lower economic communities that I come from knew the power of capitalism, that it could also change their lives. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Inspirational is a word that can get used a lot, but this week's guest is truly inspirational. Javon McCormick shouldn't have succeeded. He was born the mixed race son of a drug dealing pimp and an orphaned single mother on welfare. He was raised in the slums of Dayton, Ohio, suffered incredible abuse, racism, and had multiple stints in juvenile justice system. He barely graduated school and has no college degree, but he did succeed. Starting from scrubbing toilets, Javon hustled and worked his way to better opportunities, finding incredible success in banking and mortgage industries. He was on top of the world, and then it fell apart. He lost his job, all his money, had to borrow money from his friends for rent, back to nothing. But Javon used these setbacks to help him learn forward, as a springboard to help him reach even bigger heights, eventually becoming president of two multi-billion dollar companies. Currently, Javon is president and CEO of Scribe Media, where he helps entrepreneurs, executives, and experts write, publish, and market their books for people such as David Goggins and Chris Voss, winning number one Best Places to Work awards, including having the Top Culture Award from Entrepreneur Magazine. This story and show is truly inspirational. However, before we hear what Javon is doing today, let's go back to where it all started for him that key pivotal moment that helped shift his mindset and subsequent actions. I was 10 years old and my father drove me through a neighborhood in Houston, Texas. It's called River Oaks. It's one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in America. And it was the first time I had seen five, 10, $25 million homes. And what was amazing for me is only one family lived in these homes where, you know, these houses were bigger than the housing projects I was living in. And so that was a a big turning point for me because it showed me what was possible. Now, my dad never said a word. I don't even know if he was driving me through there or if he was driving himself through there, but I was there. And my takeaway was, okay, I'm going to have one of those houses one day, but it showed me possibility. And that was very key because up until that, all I knew were pimps, drug dealers, drug addicts, poverty, hunger, homelessness. I did not know that these houses even, that this this life even existed, these gated homes, these manicured lawns, these, the incredible size of these homes. And that the possibility was then in my mind of, oh, okay, well, if someone else got one, I'm going to get one. So that drive, was that natural to you? There was possibility is what piqued the curiosity or the drive there? Or did you feel within yourself that there was something holding you back? Or was there the inspiration from your parents, your father? Like, what, what was driving that in you? What was driving me, nothing was holding me back per se. The only thing that was holding me back was the fact that I didn't know. That's a big part of the problem that you have in low economic communities right now is 
you don't know what you don't know. Matter of fact, I said this at a keynote speech one time, Barry. I stood on stage and I asked, there was uh, 250 CEOs, founders of, you know, eight, nine figure, 10-figure companies. And I asked, I said, okay, how many people in the room can perform brain surgery? How many neurosurgeons are in the room? Raise your hand. Of course, no one raised their hand. And I said, okay, how many people in the room can build and launch a rocket? Raise your hand. Any aerospace engineers? No one raised their hand. I said, see, we don't know what we don't know. Unfortunately, from the low economic communities that I come from, there's just a lot that we don't know. And so the big piece for me, if I would have had to say something was holding me back, it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just, I didn't know what existed. So when I was shown possibility, that was game changing for me. Even though I didn't know how I was going to get there, it showed me possibility and it was up to me to go figure out, okay, now I got to go make that happen. Yeah, that's a, it's such a fascinating point, right? Because I think a lot of us in many levels of our lives are very much conditioned to the world that we're in or the world that we see. And how do we find ways to get outside that, to see something that's different, that challenges oh, our thinking, that inspires us, that how many people even have the audacity to go look for that themselves, right? It's, some of it isn't available, but there's some inclinations inside folks that make them do that. I like that, Barry, because for me, I've always said to people, one of the greatest gifts that was given to me was I was not born into a middle-class lifestyle. And people kind of look at me, especially given my background. You know, my, my dad was black and was a pimp and a drug dealer. He fathered 23 children. My mother was an orphan. She grew up in an institutional orphanage. I don't know where my last name comes from. I was in and out of juvenile prison three different times. I've got a GED. I've got no college degree. And again, I grew up in poverty. I grew up, you know, hungry. I grew up on the welfare system, public housing. But why I say that it was a gift that I was not born into middle class is I personally believe the middle class is as big as it is here in America because you aspire to what you see and what you know. Yeah. If you were born into a two-parent home and your mom and dad worked, or maybe just one of your parents worked and they went to college and you live in a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house and, and you're told, go to college, get a degree, get a good job. Well, you're going to rise to the level of what you see around you. Well, how I grew up, I was at the bottom of the barrel. So when I saw that house and I saw those just mega mansions, I skipped right over the middle class and said, okay, I want to go there. <laughs> so it was a gift to be born into where I came from because there was no level of aspiration. Who wanted to stay there? So for me, I'm like, okay, I'm going that level. I'm not going to stop at three bedroom, two and a half bath house. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love it. One of the things we talk a lot about on the show is thinking big, but then actually starting small, right? It's important yeah. to think big to really challenge our assumptions of the world, stretch our thinking, push us forward in many ways. But you don't take huge leaps to get there, right? Think big, but start small and learn fast. So for you then, what, what were some of those steps then that you started to take? You know, you, you were inspired by what you saw that gave you that aspiration, that something you know, bigger possibility and how you were going to go after it. So how did you start small? What were some of those first sort of 
small steps to even help you believe that that dream is possible, right? Because each small step builds the confidence to say, wow, maybe I even need to recalibrate how big I can go here. So what were those first early steps for you? One of the pieces I would say now, because so many people will say, okay, what was the one thing that helped? And I mean, given my background, good God, there was no one thing. But what, what I've sat back and I've thought about countless times, because I've been asked that question so many times, and here's what I've come up with, is especially now in America, somewhere along the line, we stopped being consistent. Consistency is what helped me. We be, have become a nation of instant gratification. We want it now. You know, the, the internet. The, yeah, the internet. Tap, tap, tap. Oh, totally. The internet has not helped with that. We want it now. I mean, think about this. Why is the diet industry so big? Because everybody wants the magic pill that's going to make you lose 30 pounds in 30 days. And the fact of the matter is, excuse my language, the shit doesn't exist. But it's crazy because here's the thing. We live in a society now where we want to go to the gym at two o'clock in the afternoon and we want to lose 30 pounds by 4 p.m. It's so bad in our country right now. If we could go to the gym at two and lose 30 pounds by four, we would be pissed that we couldn't do it by three. And so it's consistency has just gone away. So for when people ask me that question, I realized, huh, the biggest thing was I was always consistent. I always believed. I kept looking forward with that belief and trying, okay, what, how can I get better? How can I improve? How can I learn from my mistakes? I truly believe you only fail if you stop trying. I've had a lot of failed relationships because we broke up. We, we stopped trying. But when I was the first time president of a software company, my God, I made a ton of mistakes. But yeah. the goal was to learn, grow, and not repeat those mistakes. But you only fail if you stop trying. So I just made a commitment to myself a long time ago. The hell with it. I'm just never going to stop trying. And so for me, to your point is consistency has been a, a big factor in everything that, that I do is, is just be consistent. Yeah, no, it's one of the reasons I like having real talk folk like yourself on the show, right? So much of the world is now painted with this, you know, to your aspiration point, it's a created sort of fake future, right? Like the yeah. social media, it's like, look at this amazing body that I created or because I, I did a program for or whatever. Really, did you? Or the way we idolize a lot of entrepreneurs is they got up, went for a jog, tripped over a stone and launched a $10 billion company, right? Like we, we don't talk about the hard yards that are done there. You know, one of the things I always remember is working with some of like the fantastic leaders of Capital One, right? They would say, anything worth doing is never easy. It's hard every day, even in startups, right? You solve a problem, your gift is another problem to solve. And you keep yep. solving, yeah, you keep surviving, then you maybe scale, that's awesome, right? But nobody talks about the hard part of that consistency, the how many times you have to get really knocked down to step back up, to have grit. Oh, to, yeah. No, deal with no those one talks about right? that. Yeah. No and, one and, talks about it. You know, so again, it's why I, I love hearing stories like from your people like yourself, right? Like when you've had those moments, you know, where you've taken a, a hit, you know, and may, maybe you're, you're having that crisis of like, how am I going to push through this? What are some of the things that help you keep moving forward? Like keep making those steps? Because I think that's where it's hard when people say, how do I keep trying? How do, like, what are the, 
the little things that drive you then to just make that, to keep the, the consistency, to keep the step going? Because I think that's where it's hardest for folks to keep believing in the aspiration they have and moving forward. It's interesting because so many people assume that I find my inspiration based on my background of growing up the way I did. And, you know, from times of being left with my siblings and and having to navigate that. I mean, we when I was a kid, I was 12. I got left with three of my half-brothers and sisters. And we got left in a house. It was uh, February in Dayton, Ohio. And so it was cold out, very cold. And my dad had taken off to England. My mom was in Texas and she did not know where, where I was because my dad had taken me. And then we were living with one of my dad's prostitutes and this prostitute left us on a Sunday afternoon. She took off, left me with my three half brothers and sisters. They were four, three and two. And she left and come Wednesday she still isn't back. And we were running out of food. And, and I had to tell my four-year-old sister to babysit the three-year-old and the two-year-old. Now imagine you're telling a four-year-old to babysit because I had to go down to the store and, and steal food. And keep in mind, I'm supposed to be in school right now, but I'm not, I'm not going to leave my, my brothers and sisters. So I go down to the store, I steal food, I get back. And I immediately realized that my little brother doesn't have any diapers and he's two. And I'm like, okay, I can't steal diapers. And so I had to potty train him and I, I set him on the toilet and, and I, I looked at him and he's crying. I'm crying. I'm like, Hey man, until something comes out, this is how it's going down. And so this went on for three weeks, you know, where I would have to go down steal food and so we could eat. But the greatest stress, the reason why I share that story, the greatest stress I've ever had in life is every hour I feared that they would disconnect the electricity or the water and we would freeze because it was cold out or we wouldn't be able to take a bath or have anything to drink because we would have no water. And every hour that sat with me. So, you know, the stresses that come with business and income statements, balance sheets, hiring, culture, I kind of keep it in perspective a little bit. So, But (laughs) but what's Uh, interesting though, Barry, is the reason I share that, follow me here, is so many people will say, well, I don't have those type of stories like you do to inspire myself or to keep belief. And this is what's shocking to people. I said, actually, I don't use my own stories to find inspiration or to keep going. What I look at is I turn on the news and they're like, what do you mean? I go right now. I said, watch the news. There was a mom walking, walking on foot. 1,100 miles from Honduras to try to get into America. And she's with her two kids. And I said, and guess what? They're at the border right now. And they're debating, okay, do I cross this Rio Grande River? I could drown. My kids could drown. But I'm going I'm to make this and we're going to do it. And so, boom, let's say they do it. Let's say they get across. Let's say they get in. Here's what they get for getting in. You're into the country. You're here. All you got was in. You still don't speak the language. You still need money. You need a job. You don't have shelter. You have no place to go. But you got in. And I say to people, on my worst day as a kid of being sexually molested, being left, being in juvenile prison, on my worst day, I never had to face any of that. 
I was born in this country. I have a responsibility to be successful. So I say to people, my inspiration comes in just day-to-day things that are going on in life right now. The cancer patient that's in the hospital that would give anything to get out of bed and walk to the restroom on their own two feet, but they can't even get out of bed right now. I've never experienced cancer, don't know what it's like, but I know I'm grateful every day that my feet hit the ground and I can get out of my bed and I can walk to the restroom. And those are the things that I look at for inspiration. So many people focus on what's wrong, what they can't do, who's holding them back. Ah, damn all that. What can I do to further myself? It's just so inspiring, you know, to hear you, you know, because what I hear here is deep empathy for people's situations and a curiosity to actually look for that. You know, like most people are so, they can get stuck in their own world. It's easy to sort of have uh, something not work out and feel sorry for yourself or get stuck, right? And that that's not a great place to go. You know, many I've seen that in many of my own friends who lead to mental health issues or struggles where they can't break out of that that mode. It's a path to perdition in a way. But what I inspired by when I hear what you're saying here is that you're you're constantly looking for these moments though, whether it was when you were a small kid and your dad took you on a drive and you saw something different to you look at other situations in the news where people are going through huge adversity to try and just have a better situation for themselves, for their kids, for their family, and that you're drawing strength from almost the power of those people, like their spirit, their willingness. And I think that it's a great way to sort of step back and be grateful for what you have got and achieved, but also not sit on your laurels, I find is a that's a great mechanism, I think, to always help us focus, right? It seems like it's a habit for you. That's something that you're building into your life. It is. It's a habit. It's a choice. It's a consistency. As we said, I've got a GED. I've got no college degree. Man, even to this day, I've got four children, seven, six, four, and two. To this day, Barry, I have trouble reading my kids' books to them. I don't always know what the words are. And I got to ask my wife, what does this say? Now, my my seven-year-old, she's catching up and she's like, dad, it says this. I'm like, all right, hey, I was testing you. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm I'm dyslexic as well. So I, I, I know it's only a matter of time until I'm behind, but yeah. But you know, it's a choice. It's a mindset. Here's one I'll give you that happened recently. The whole virus disruption that went down. I remember, because our business, we publish books for authors. And and so the great majority of our authors are are well off financially. So I I remember, and and I'm part of some of these CEO groups, and, you know, most of the people in these groups are also well off financially. And I remember I would get on calls with people during the virus disruption when, when we first went shelter in place. And I would hear people say this, and this is the mindset I'm talking about. People would say, oh, yeah, you know, it sucks. I'm stuck at home. I'm tired of being stuck at home. And it just rubbed me the wrong way because I said, wait a minute, I know you. In fact, I've been to a dinner party at your house. You live in a multi-million dollar house in a gated community. You're getting Whole Foods delivered to your house. Excuse my language, Barry. You can edit me out. I'm like, you're not fucking stuck. I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, you know who's stuck right now? 
that kid that's in an abusive home that can't go to school because they just shut the schools down. And guess what? That kid who depended on that free lunch because there's nothing to eat at home, that kid is stuck. That kid that doesn't have internet, but we as a society, we're talking about if kids should be in school or if they not should not be in school. Well, that's a great debate for all the people who can actually have that option. But the kids who don't have internet, the kids who are stuck at home that depend on that free lunch, the kids that depended on those teachers and those counselors for any little bit of support that they receive, those kids are stuck. That's stuck. That shit you're living in in a multi-million dollar home with Whole Foods delivery, kiss my ass. You're not stuck. And, and it's just that mindset that we walk around with that we don't take our own checks and balances to look at what really is going on. Yeah, or check our privilege, right? Like that's the whole point, right? On a lot of these things. You know, it's interesting as well. Like your work at Scribe Media is really interesting to me too, right? Like, as I mentioned, like I'm dyslexic and written a couple of books, but I didn't write them. <laughs> That's all right, Barry. I didn't write mine either, man. <laughs> I spoke well, like, it. <laughs> well, that, me too. That's right. And that's what I did. I got someone to interview me because talking yeah. is my natural way to create content, right? And that was the sort of breakthrough. You know, I had that vision that I need to be wearing a purple sort of velvet jacket, drinking red wine and just riding like Hemingway my whole life. But that wasn't <laughs> me. That didn't work for me. I needed to talk it and somebody transcribed it and sent it back to me. And that's what helped me iterate it and build it, you know, and I know you've done that for built this fantastic business yourself because finding ways to get through the methods that are going to work are different, right? And uh, recognizing what limitations are and finding the, the right way to get the breakthrough is, is always been one of the things that's been most fascinating for me. But you're continuing to like, you know, the books are fantastic. What you're turning out, it's phenomenal business you've created and lots of great books. And I know on our first call, I was straight away going, there's David Goggins in the background and you telling me that you helped create the podcast, which me and my <laughs> wife used to listen to when we were going to the gym in the morning. We'd listen to Goggins to get powered up. So I, I loved it. And you know, you're working with Chris Foss and all these fantastic people that really, you know, there's ins inspirational authors and just characters in general. It was great. But I'd love you to talk a little bit more as well about your work with conscious capitalism as well. I think that's like, it's a phenomenal entity doing some really interesting work. I think it's a great juncture of both your ethics mindset, but also your entrepreneurialism coming together. Can you share a little bit about that and what got you inspired to get working in that space and some of the things that are moving forward there too? For sure. What really led me down there to the, the conscious capitalism path, and, and, and they obviously have, have many different veins of what conscious capitalism means, because it means different things to different people. But for me personally, why I got involved was we live in a society right now where capitalism is demonized and people yeah. look down upon capitalism. And I'll be the first to tell you, hell, capitalism has provided me the life that I have right now. And I truly believe that if more people from the lower economic communities that I come from knew the power of capitalism, that it could also change their lives. So that became my vein of what's conscious capitalism look like. Growing up, I had three options, rapper, athlete, drug dealer, and Barry, I sucked at all three. So the, the, <laughs> those options weren't going to take me very far. But no one told me about entrepreneurship. No one told yeah. me I could be an executive. No one told me about the, the business world. 
stock trading, financial planners, wealth advisors. Yeah, wealth creation. Yeah. I, yeah, I knew none of this. And so for me, conscious capitalism is truly taking capitalism back to those communities that it can impact and change. And I'll give one small example. John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, is also on the Conscious Capitalism yeah, yeah, Board. Yeah. And I've said this, I've given this example in front of him. Think about this. It's a travesty. It's a shame. It's effed up that in lower economic communities, they know what a food desert is, but they don't know what organic food is. And so we have this debate in America right now about corporate tax breaks. And my opinion is, here's who should receive a corporate tax break. If Whole Foods took one of their locations and set it up in a lower economic community, okay, we know right off the bat, Whole Foods has a hell of a price point on it. So that Whole Foods probably isn't going to be as profitable as the Whole Foods out by my house. Okay, great. but. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to introduce organic food to a community that knows nothing about it. You're going to provide fresh food to a community that is desperate for it. And more importantly, over time, you are going to change generational poverty. Because if you took a Whole Foods and you brought jobs to those communities, what's going to happen is maybe that kid that lives at home with his mom or dad or even a single parent now sees, oh, my mom or dad goes to work each day. They have a job. And so you're, again, showing possibility of what this actually could look like. Mom has a great job. Mom has a 401k. Mom has health care. So not only am I bringing fresh food to the community, I'm introducing organic food, but I'm also breaking generational poverty. Now, for that, if that Whole Foods is not as profitable as some of the other ones, hell yeah, Whole Foods should get a big-ass tax break. So there are little things like that that, for me, I feel could truly impact and change our country in, in a great way. Is everybody going to want to get a job in the low economic communities? Hell no. I, I grew up there. I know there's a lot of people that don't want to and, and aren't going to go to work and are going to bitch, complain, and blame somebody else. Okay, great. But you know what? There's a large contingent of people that would jump on an opportunity to work at a Starbucks, work at a Whole Foods, or what other things that you can set up in those communities. You remind me of this fantastic book I read recently. It's called Strong Towns. A bottom-up revolution to rebuild American prosperity. It's by Charles Marlin, Jr. And it's all about designing communities intentionally to allow these types of scenarios that you've just described happen. We tend to think that some of the economics, as you're sort of alluding to, right? Like we'll put the high-priced organic food store in the beautiful neighborhood that's the most expensive because, hey, that's a business profitability decision, right? Versus... Can we make a public, a community decision to say, actually, you know what? The more that we put these types of stores, if that's our example, right? In, in a broad base of communities, everyone gets educated about what's happening. They get educated because it's in front of them. They have the job opportunities. Right. Questions like, what's different about this store? Why, oh, why, why should I care about eating organic food versus cheeseburgers because it's a dollar each and it, it fits within my budget? or you're designing, intentionally designing a more equitable 
situation where people are educated because it's in front of them. And I think you've mentioned this as well, even about wealth creation. I think some of the work Kevin Hart is doing is, is truly inspiring for me about his mission to educate communities, especially lower income communities about wealth creation. You know, the reason he's doing any like people might wonder why is he doing an ad for Chase on, on credit cards is because he's doing a deal with them. So they'll educate lots of people about financial and wealth creation opportunities. That, that's why he's doing it. He's, he's trying to create a link through his brand to help people be aware of these types of things. Like there's intention behind what some of these folks are doing. Even at Nobody Studios, one of our goals is to make what that was wealth creation opportunities accessible to all, right? Primarily, it's only a very small number of people that ever get to invest in private companies. And that is a massive wealth creation opportunity. But we're offering that to the crowd, right? Where anyone, 250 bucks is still a big number, don't get me wrong, but it's a lot of a different number from a million dollar people who only get to play that game. You know, so I, I think this notion of trying to create a more accessible, just educated society on these opportunities. It's on us. Like we have to make these decisions as leaders now. And because, you know, you're running these companies, you're on these boards, which is great that you're, you're getting in front of the head of Whole Foods and taking them on on this stuff. Like I love it. Right. But I think we all have to take our, our play our part in these scenarios. Otherwise the system isn't going to change. It's, it's just going to op- optimize for the profitability component and people will, keep quiet and not speak up. And I think there's a lot on us all to contribute, right? In, in that sort of situation and opportunity we have. It's interesting, Barry, because for me, there's nothing wrong with profitability. I mean, hell, it hurts me to say nonprofit. I don't, I don't deal in nonprofit. I'm all about profit, but I know that you can be profitable and do good at the same time. I'm real easy in business. I live by this formula. People first, So I go people, process, profits, and as a benefit, you can do great things for the communities with those profits. But there is nothing wrong with being extremely profitable, in my opinion, as long as you're doing right by the people that you serve and doing right by the communities in which you serve. So I'm a big fan of profitability. There's nothing wrong with it. Profitability provides healthcare for people. Profitability provides For me, one of my big initiatives is I like to buy backpacks full of supplies for entire elementary schools and low economic communities because, get this, we live in a country where everyone's preaching education is the key. Education is the key. Education first. Hell, if I don't have the tools to even get an education, you're two steps in front of me. I need a backpack with supplies to even get the education. When I was a kid and I sat in class and the teacher said, who needs a pencil? I had to raise my hand. Who needs paper? I had to raise my hand. I didn't even have the tools necessary. So a lot of times you see in America, my opinion, we're a country at times of status signaling. We like to say all the right shit, but we don't actually like to follow through and actually show examples and do what's necessary. It just sounds really good to say those things. Barry, you're sending me off on a tangent, man. <laughs> here's, here's one right here, like man. When it's like when you hit the vein. That's what no, we always man, you want the, You hit the vein, Barry. You know, like, get, get this one. Here's some status signaling shit you see in America. Every Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving time, and they're not doing it this year, but for, for a good five to seven, 10 years straight, all of these retailers started announcing, oh, we're going to be open Thanksgiving Day at six o'clock. 
we're going to be open, you know, and, and so there was this big push on social media that, oh, retail should not be open. People should be allowed to be at home with their families, boycott XYZ store, blah, blah. And, and I would sit back and I'd say to myself, okay, wait a minute. Do you realize some of these people are happy to go to work because they're going to make some money for their families? And if you don't like the store, don't go. But here's what was mind blowing to me. I've never seen a pushback or a big ass protest for the American farmer. The American farmer works 365, 365 days a year. Cows got to be milked. Chickens got to be fed. Where's their protest? How about the cleaning people at the hospital that are at work that day making hourly wages? How about the housekeepers at the hotels that are working Thanksgiving, Christmas? Where's their protest? I just think at times, you know, we in America like to do status signaling bullshit that we don't actually follow through with. And then here's my last one, Barry, and I'll shut up. My favorite is when I see someone post on Thanksgiving, they'll go and feed the homeless. And they want to post a picture of them and their family and how they're feeding the homeless and how they, and here's the thing. Okay, good for you. You have a job or a career that allowed you to be off on Thanksgiving so you could have a Thanksgiving and you went down and you fed the homeless. Oh, good for you. I don't give a damn that you went and fed somebody on Thanksgiving. What'd you do on June 8th? What'd you do on August 2nd? What'd you do on October 1st? Did you go feed anybody then? Don't send me this status signaling bullshit that just tries to show that you did something on Thanksgiving because you want to feel good about yourself. If you want to feel that good about yourself, don't post the damn picture. This all goes back to consistency for me. I'm hearing it again, right? This is a daily practice that people need to institute and daily choices that we have to make if we're really going to go down these paths. And I love it. I love love that you're calling all this BS out. We need to hear more (laughs) of it. So, Javon, like, you know, looking forward now, you know, we've debated a little bit about what's wrong in the world and how we could make it a little bit righter, but... For you, like, what are some of the things that are lighting you up? What are you sort of excited about as you look ahead and, and maybe some of the opportunities you're seeing, especially either both as entrepreneurs, you're bringing new writers and amazing books and talented people into the world to share their stories, or as you, you know, you're working with these companies to help them make better choices on a more consistent, like ongoing basis. But what's those things that's lighting you up at the moment? You know, I'm two-sided on this one, Barry. I do like where we are as a country right now, as far as it seems that we're attempting to level set a lot of the racial dynamics in our country. And again, I'm half black, half white. And and I always say this to people. I say, okay, look, if you want to have a race discussion, let me tell you what it's like when black people don't like you because you're half white and white people don't like you because you're half black. That's a whole different racial discussion. And so uh, I do like that we're at least attempting to level set. And so what's lighting me up right now is doing my best to be at the forefront of that. And, you know, one of the things, Barry, you and I talked about this, you know, I'll just give the story with my name change. So back in my early 20s, I was trying to get on people's calendars. My name's Javon Thomas McCormick is my full name. And in my early 20s, I'll be 50 this year. But in my my early 20s, I was trying to get on people's calendars. And I could not get an appointment to save my life. One gentleman, white guy, answered the phone. And he said, hey, I got a question. He said, how did you get a black 
first name, Javon, and an Irish last name, McCormick. <laughs> and what was funny to me, Barry, is I didn't know my last name was Irish. My mother got our last name in the orphanage. We have no clue where, why, how we got this last name. So I still, to this day, have this last name, McCormick. No clue how I got it. We're happy to claim you, Javon. Don't worry. Hey, man. (laughs) (laughs) And so what was funny, I hung up the phone and it immediately hit me. I was like, oh, I'm not getting on calendars because people are seeing my first name and they're like, okay, black guy. And so I said to myself, hmm, my name's Javon Thomas McCormick. I'm going to start going by JT. And I shifted and I started going by JT. Barry, I'll be damned the next week. Calendar lit up. Started getting appointments, getting on people's calendars. And from then on until last year, this time last year, I went by JT McCormick. And I'll go back to the status signaling of this country that we were talking about. Then after the George Floyd murder, you started seeing all of this, I call it shallow bullshit status signaling, blackout Tuesday on social media. What the hell does that do to move the needle for anybody? What's that progressing? Nothing. And then Barry, we were arguing over a damn syrup bottle, a syrup bottle. And so I was like, okay, whatever. I read an article and this is where it really hit me. I read an article that said that there were only three black fortune 500 CEOs in America. So I was like, well, who are they? And I went and looked at their names. Follow me. Kenneth Frazier, Marvin Ellison, and Roger Ferguson. And as a bonus, the wealthiest black man in America is named Robert Smith. And I thought to myself, hmm, four very ethnic-free names, if you will. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm not a Fortune 500 CEO, but I've made some good money in the stock market. I've scaled two companies. I've become a CEO. And even our company, Scribe, we were named the number one company culture in America by Entrepreneur Magazine. So I was like, okay, I've I've done a couple of things. And I said, you know what? I'm going to start going by Javon again. And here's the thing, Barry. I didn't make the decision for me. I had built my career as JT. I made the decision for every kid named Ravante, Martavius, Laquanda, Lucretia, And I did it with the intent and the belief that one day when they hit corporate America, when they hit the working world, that maybe they can work next to a Javon and not just a JT. And so for me, that's what's driving me now is how do we continue to make change and actually bring about real change and not just fictitious status signaling, shallow shit. And what do we do? You know, right now there's this big movement. Companies keep telling you what their initiatives are to attract more minority candidates. We want to attract more. Everybody's talking about attraction. Guess what? What are you doing once they're in your office? What are you doing then? What are you doing to make sure that the work environment is equal for them that it is everyone else? So we're so busy with attraction and companies are touting the fact that they hired a chief diversity officer and they started using pronouns and they hired some minorities. Okay, great. You didn't win the race. There's diversity doesn't have a damn finish line. So, you know, there's not a mission. There's no goal. There's like, how do we make this a way of life? Yeah, no, I, I love what you're saying. You know, in the last company I worked in, ThoughtWorks, one of the things we were most proud of is that we had the most female engineers of any software engineer company. You know why? Because we used to publish our numbers about how we were doing. One of the only tech companies to ever do it. 
And every conversation, initially it started off as like, hang on, if we bring in more females, we're lower in the bar. That was, there was always these like, you know, crappy sort of blowbacks of, but what we were doing was creating a space where people like that felt welcome. Where yeah. when they walked in the door, they saw people like them in roles of leadership that had authority, that had stories about the day I started and how I was given a chance and how I'm now leading this team and how I'm moving up onto the senior leadership team. And our founder was phenomenal because he role modeled that every day and he seeked out the statusing or as you're, you're describing it and he eradicated it because it was a consistent practice every day of us asking ourselves, are we giving everybody equal opportunities here? Are we looking around the rooms? Are we just seeing like five white guys on the team and no one else? Because that's wrong. That's yeah. not the type of team that we want to have. And, and it's amazing when you start to foster that, the system starts to look after itself. People start to ask questions like, why does the team look all the same? Why don't we have different females, people from ethnicity, different levels of skills? Why does the management team all look the same? Like, it starts to regulate itself, but you have to make it a place where people feel comfortable to have those conversations. Do you talk about them? That it's, you know, it's, it's not the, let me take a photo on Thanksgiving because I'm, held, I'm doing my give back for the year, my one-time give back <laughs> for the year. You know, like you look at a lot of these companies, Javon, and most, they don't want to share the truth. Yeah, yeah. sure, we got a diversity program. Sure, we got a bolt-on story to tell but they won't share the reality. And I think that's really stuck with me personally in my career and definitely something you know I want to see in anything that I'll ever be involved in the future is we have to talk about it. We have to call it out. And it can't just be a, a one-time thing. One of the most interesting things about Nobody Studios is the fourth person we hired is our culture officer. And she's a litigation attorney who's worked in employee law for years. She spent all her time trying to fix these companies. And she'd always say that she arrived too late because people bring her in at the end when the problem is... When is the problem's already occurred. <laughs> you know, and Sachel Thacker, she's phenomenal. And this is one of the things, like building it from the beginning. And I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about at the moment. And hopefully people like you or me, and we'll just hold our all ourselves accountable to a better consistency that we need to have. So I love what you're sharing. And Barry, I'll give you this, this last piece here. I would equally make the argument with anyone. You know, when you, you look at my background, again, my dad was a pimp and drug dealer, fathered 23 kids. My mom was an orphan. You know, there's nothing about my background that says corporate America, entrepreneur, nothing whatsoever. But what, what I do bring is a knowledge that most people don't have. The organization of chaos the ability to process information very fast because how I grew up, you're constantly trying to avoid either being sexually molested, being jumped, being beaten up. You're trying to figure out how am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? So there were gifts that came from the way I grew up. There was a privilege that came from the way I grew up. And I'll give you this last example. And a lot of people, why well, I catch some fire on this one, Barry, but I stand by the example. So here's the deal. Every drug dealer in America knows the first rule. The first rule is the first sample is free. And the reason being is when you get that first sample, we know you're going to get hooked. 
we know you're going to come back and then you'll be a loyal customer. So follow me on this, Barry. What do pharmaceutical reps do for a living? They give away free samples. You wouldn't believe what I've got in my suitcase here, actually. Here's a couple of samples for you. Do you want to give a go? And so here, but but follow, follow the trail here. So pharmaceutical reps, follow this. They go to the doctor's office and they give out free samples. So they bring donuts, take doctors to lunches, but whatever, they take them to golf, all these different things. And so then the doctor gives a sample to the patient. Patient decides they like the sample. They call the doctor like, hey, I'd like to, to get a prescription of this. Well, then the doctor says, well, hold on. I need you to come back in because now the doctor wants to make that visit fee again for you to come back in, even though it's only going to take you two minutes to get a prescription. So you go back in, doctor fills a prescription, but then they send it over to Walgreens. Okay, so Walgreens fills a prescription. So Walgreens has got to get a cut. But then, wait a minute, United Healthcare, the insurance, the insurer, they've got to get a cut. And so before you know it, everyone's gotten a piece of this before it makes it up to the cartel, Pfizer. And yes, I did say cartel. Now, here's how this works on the street. You have the cartel that ships it into the states. You have the local kingpin drug dealer. And then the local kingpin drug dealer has his lieutenants out on the street, passing it out, you know, the people out there that are are selling it on the street. So you've got roughly three levels. That's it. It's not convoluted. Everyone understands the order of operations. Good corporate structure. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I'm like, this is how you run efficient and effective operation. But here's what's crazy. If I went and I told some of these kids that are standing out on the corner from sunup to sundown, I said, hey, if I told you you could give away free drug samples for a living and you'd make six figures, you'd have a company car a company credit card, an expense account. And if you're really good at it, guess what? You're going to get an award at the end of the year and you're going to get a bonus. Would you be interested? That's it. Hell yeah, I'd be interested. And here's what's funny. I will put money behind this. Those kids put into those situations will outwork 80% of the pharmaceutical reps who are out there because they're like, wait a minute, this is a completely different game. And I get to go do this and I just pass it out for free. That's it. Oh my God. I don't get arrested. I don't go to jail. I don't worry about getting beat up. I don't have to worry about getting shot or robbed. And I make six figures. Wow. Sign me up. Well, you know what? I hope we get to a world where we can create those kind of opportunities for people to make those choices. And I know it's going to be a lot of hard work and a lot of education and a lot of people given up a little bit actually for better opportunities. And I just want to thank you, Javon, for spending one of the most fun hours I've had in a while. <laughs> <laughs> to really just hey, like... Barry, you let me go on a rant, man. That's your fault. <laughs> you know, like if there's one thing we love on this show, it's people just speaking from their heart and what really matters and what they believe in. And I can't think of anyone who better exemplifies that that I've seen in a long time than you. So... Thank you very much for you know giving us uh, some time just today. And I'm a smile on my face at the end of the show. I'm inspired. I'm ready to go kick some ass and do some things differently and, and challenge myself and say, how, how consistent am I really being with the things that I believe in? It's a great takeaway for me. And I just want to thank you for sharing that with you. Keep up the hustle. It's, it's inspiring stuff. My man, Barry, I greatly appreciate it, man. There's no excuses. And as I tell people, 
uh, people say, well, I'm not making excuses. I'm just giving reasons. And I say reasons are just a nice word for excuses. You know, <laughs> I, I when I look at our country, I look at where I come from, what I've been able to achieve. I truly mean it. It's consistency. It's the willingness to believe and really take action and go do things different. Is it going to be easy? Hell no, it's not going to be easy. None, none of the shit that I did to get to where I am is easy. I'll even argue with, you know, people say, well, it wasn't fair that you had to work a hundred times harder than the next guy because that guy came from a, a two-parent home. He was white, went to the great schools. You know, it's not fair that you had to work a hundred times harder than him. And here's my thing. I tell people, I never spent time worrying about what was fair. If I worked a hundred times harder than that guy, all that meant to me was, guess what? I'm a hundred times better than That's you better. and I will surpass you. It's just phenomenal mindset to have, Javon. Thank you for sharing it with us. I'm, I'm excited to see how many people are going to be in touch with you now on the back of this. So it, it is to be looking <laughs> forward to sharing this show. Again, thanks very much. Pleasure to have you and look after yourself. My man, Barry, you know how to get a hold of me, man. This was great. I appreciate it. <laughs>